0: Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses, and Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and Its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, The Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses All available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American citizenship and its decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hanson today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash VDH to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash VDH to start. Hillsdale.edu slash VDH. (laughs) Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler. I'm the host. Victor Davis Hanson is the star and the namesake, and he's the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College, where he is right now. Victor has just finished a two-week teaching stint there. We thought we were going to not be able to record any podcast until victor got back a week from now but found a little narrow window here on this
1: i have a little tiny microphone in my luggage well
0: (laughs) oh that's nice they always carry one victor is going to be taking some questions from me the man lucky to ask him questions on my own behalf and on behalf of many listeners we'll talk about some college lunacy that's going on and a couple of pieces. Victor's written about old bad lies. And then maybe if we have some time, we'll talk to Farmer Hansen about some stuff he's written for his website, victorhansen.com, on growing raisins. Not fun. Tasty, but not fun. And we'll get to the college stuff right after these important messages. Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah. Yeah. It's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000 or... Visit tnusa.com slash victor, tnusa.com slash victor. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens, to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup Your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show Victor. I know when you do these um Hillsdale stints two weeks, three weeks they are it, it is wall to wall teaching grading lecturing activity so uh i am assuming the last two weeks for you were was a lot of work yeah. and uh
1: uh but I, st- I started when I was fifty and i'm sixty nine so nineteen years of it. I have a lot of good friends here. It takes me a week to adjust to the climate when I get older. And then it's hard, you know, standing on your feet, lecturing for three hours was a breeze when I was 51 or two or five, but 69, I don't know. I can feel it, but I think it's the long COVID. I I think when that is over, I'll feel 50 again. It's called, Jack, it's called long COVID euphoria when you break through. Oh,
0: well um I i'm waiting you, for it i was gonna say uh, i i hope you experience experience it maybe even during this recording yeah, and that would i be hope so
1: it can happen any moment i'm told
0: <laughs> well victor let's talk about some college stuff well i'll throw three things out there uh, i think two are very much worth talking about on their own uh let me the little one is just maybe just to make a note that uh that terrible case in um at Oberlin College, where, where the where the uh, school, its administrators rallied students to antagonize a local bakery, charged them with racism. As many listeners know a few years ago, the, the uh, family who owned the Gibsons, they sued the college. They won. They won a dramatic amount of money. Several of the family members died w- while waiting. Yeah, that before- was
1: terrible. That was terrible.
0: Truly terrible. But finally, the the um, school has agreed, isn't that nice of them, to pay $36 million. Plus interest. Uh, plus interest. Uh, they, they appealed and appealed. The, the Ohio Supreme Court flipped them the bird. So um, that is a, I would hope, a, a, a great blow for those of us who think, you, you know, you can fight back. Uh, you can win. I don't know that that kind of experience uh, makes the uh, troublemakers, college administrator troublemakers take t- you know take a breath. Or maybe we shouldn't do this. Look what happened to Oberlin. Uh, anyway, that happened. So, uh, if you have any thoughts on that, Victor?
1: If not, we'll, move on. I, I, well, I read the statement from the college, and what was manifest, there was no apology. Right. They never said we're sorry for falsely accusing you of racism. We're sorry of using university resources and personnel to organize protest and boycotts of your bakery and store. We're sorry that we caused you such economic damage and we libeled you. And we're sorry that we kept appealing so we wouldn't have to pay you anything, even though the original court found us culpable. And we had to go, we took it all the way to the Ohio Supreme Court. And the patriarch died of old age, and then his son died of, I think, cancer. And so it was a lot of, you know, it's a lot of stress to be called a racist and to have a lot of very affluent and highly politicized students to shun you or boycott you or call you names. And of course, in our society, there's never, there's never, I'm sorry, especially on this topic. Just Juicy Smollett has never apologized. that Mr. Phillips has never apologized to the COVID kids. The Duke faculty never apologized to the Duke lacrosse team, and we're not having another case there at the Duke volleyball. Right. It's always just throw these epithets around: racist, 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 and everything's okay. There's never a need to apologize because of, you know, we're marginalized people or we're virtue signaling. But a- after a while, the currency of the language is inflated and it has no value. So, right, it doesn't really mean much anymore. That, Victor, that charge
0: yeah, it does have its, its consequences maybe not in the most important ways let's uh, in well in this next case, you just mentioned it the the Duke uh, BYU and if I could just try to encapsulize it as and I'm sure most of our listeners have followed this to some degree, but a, a volleyball game between uh, BYU Brigham Young, Young University at and Duke. Um, A one of the Duke players alleged that someone in the crowd was yelling anti uh, uh, black racist things, comments. It just so happens that this woman, I think her name is Rachel Richardson, has an aunt who is a kind of well-known racist of her own black lady in in, uh, Texas who's running for office, who's using this case and exploiting this case and maybe actually even creating this case some weird political uh, gain. But any investiga- the investigation by BYU and anyone into what happened is that nothing happened. Nothing happened. No one said anything. No one, no one uh, yelled anything racist. But then <laughs> the, the South Carolina University, you know, the Gamecocks, the girls basketball team Uh, has now decided to forego their home and home. Uh, They were supposed to be playing BYU twice this upcoming women's basketball season. Why? Because of the scandal at BYU, except there was no scandal. I just want to recommend anyone anyway, will Kane at who's at Fox I love will I've known will a long time He's a great guy he's done some great great analysis and reporting on it but you know, Victor it's it's this is uh, this is lunacy uh, uh, nothing happened but something happened and uh, and and the coach of, of South Carolina is even though there's no evidence of anything is going to go ahead and make like the emperor's you know fully clothed and your thoughts about this.
1: Well, it's a logic of the say them witch trial. So you call somebody a witch, you call somebody a witch. Other people know that that person is not a witch. But if they stand up and say, wait a minute, that person, that young girl is no way in the world is she a witch. How dare you do that? And then what happens, Jack? Then she's a witch. So if you stand up and say, we have a tape of the entire game. We have no record that anybody in this stands, in particular, the so-called uh, racist who yelled out epithets from the spectators' benches. We have no evidence that he did it either. In fact, the university has apologized to him. But nevertheless, we don't want to be the first one to say that, because if we're the first one to say that, that might suggest that we're weak on our woke credentials of denouncing racism. And so we just leave it up in the air and let it die like we did with Jesse Smollett and Duke Lacrosse and et cetera, et cetera. We don't have one person and any of these universities to say, wait a minute, it is a greater crime to accuse somebody of racism than, it, than almost anything. And so you've called this person a racist. There's no evidence that that was correct. And now you're compounding that crime by boycotting or suggesting that the mere allegation of racism is synonymous with the actual use of that invective. That's shameful. They should boycott any 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 school that boycotts NYU. Uh, right. Yeah,
0: yeah. Hey, I, can we? I want st- to. There's still a few more college uh, things to talk about, but just struck me while we're in referring to South Carolina. I'm sure you saw this, Victor. But if if folks don't watch Fox News or read, you know, "quote unquote" conservative media. They stick to their local paper. If they watch the network news, they're not going to have heard this, most likely. In South Carolina, there's a black state rep Democrat named Crystal Matthews, and she's the Democrat nominee for for the U.S. Senate. She's she's challenging Tim Scott and uh, the Republican incumbent, and she was caught on camera by Project Veritas a saying of the, about her white constituents. Again, she's a state rep right now. You got to treat them like, I'll say sheet, something that sounds like that. I don't want to curse on, on our podcast. Um, you, uh, imagine if a Republican had said that, Victor. Any thoughts about this?
1: Well, I guess you're asking me, Jack, if she's right, that when you treat so-called white people like She then they have a a, a natural apologetic manner. Oh, I'm not a racist, and so she's empirical. But what she's saying is that essentially she looks at the world in terms of white and black, and we're not allowed to say that she's a racist because she claims that she's marginalized or she's suffered this and that. But it's now 2022, and when you look at a lot of statistics. Uh, across the board, it's not necessarily white people who are the wealthiest or the most privileged if you look at their comparisons in income, family income or personal income compared to, say, Arab Americans or Asian Americans, etc. But she's not going to beat Tim Scott. Tim Scott's ecumenical. Everybody likes him. He's a good senator. She has no chance for that. And she thinks that that this is okay. It's not diff- Jack. It's not that much different than what Joy Reid says on the air. It's not much, you know, different than that. Ellie right. Mustel. I mean, he was what is he was a MSNBC uh, consultant lawyer, and he said that after the the COVID lockdown, he said, you know, I just don't have any desire when I come back out to see white people. I don't want to talk to them. I just would rather not be around them. That's just what people say. It's no different. What the UC Berkeley house theme house for students says, when please don't blame a white person in. This is mounting, and what I'm going to get at, these are elite pronouncements from political and media figures, right. and then it filters down. And then it is accelerated by the Soros do, um, the Soros attorneys. And they are emulated by small town attorney, uh, public attorneys, public prosecutors, whatever you call it, local district attorneys. And the result is that somebody sees a jogger in Memphis or somebody sees a mother with two children or somebody drives around recording something about white people and they think it's okay. And why wouldn't they think it's okay if a Senate candidate says the same thing, that you treat white people like blank, and a Harvard-educated graduate says that he doesn't want to see these people anymore. Doesn't want to be around them, and we've we've institutionalized racism. And if you have a separate graduation, you don't want these people there. And then at the whole the whole excuse for this blatant racism is the construct that well, sl- the history of slavery and Jim Crow make it impossible for people of color that have been marginalized to be racist. Then you get, it goes from the absurd, like Juicy Smollett and the volleyball folks and the lacrosse ruse to the deadly, the deadly. And that's killing somebody in Memphis. And yet nobody says anything. And so she's culpable for whipping up hatred. How's that? That's um, If that gets out and. Yeah would happen and it's, well, time, know, it's time for everybody just to say, you know what? just human and our right. superficial appearance is incidental to who we are. It's not essential, but that's what I think a lot of elites feel that if it's not essential to my identity, then I have to compete in the sphere of ideas or business or something and you know I'm not I'm not LeBron, I'm not open. I don't have that talent. so I'm going to use the crutch of you're a racist. So that's what she's doing.
0: You know, it's kind of a related anecdote. And, and by the way, I want to talk about with you, hear from you about two other things. I, I, I'm sorry if we're talking a lot about uh, race today, although not really. I mean, it's it is so uh, uh, being race related stories are being so promulgated and contrived uh, by uh, the leftist elites that they they you know they merit a response. They merit victor's uh you know take on it but uh you know there was a vandalized gay uh, rainbow crosswalk in in atlanta i don't know if you saw this story the other day so what were the, the headlines originally were white supremacist was accused must have been a white supremacist who vandalized the gay pride um <laughs> crosswalk with uh swat stickers and yeah it was it was the white supremacist happened to. Ble- happened to be a black guy they found out who did it is it a guy Jonah Jade Sampson, a thirty year old black guy you know who's a criminal uh, but, but he did it but of course it was had to be, had to have been a white supremacism that that uh, engaged in this um anyway, Victor on to two other things well you just to know yeah. remember that.
1: Uh, I think he's from the University of Tennessee. Remember Wilford Riley, that African American scholar? He wrote a really good book called "Hate Crime Hoax," and it was about how the left uh, peddles these fake hate crimes. Yeah, nooses are, left on. Yes, uh, they're they're commonplace. Doors. And, and yeah, there right. there there was one. I got to be very careful. There was an allegation of one at Stanford, where I was. But they uh, people understand that that sign triggers the entire wealthy white educated class to outperform each other so when jesse smollett fakes a hate crime then we have a race to the bottom with nancy pelosi kamala harris everybody's saying this is horrible no this is more horrible this is and that's and they get to virtue signal their superior uh, morality and there's never consequences to it never and it also shows that the number of would be victims and oppressed are too large for the pool of oppressors and victimizers so when you have that asymmetry you have to if you want if you want compensations from the government or from society at large what do you do when you can't be oppressed and you can't be victimized it's 2022 and you're you know you're 60 years after the civil rights movement you right. you have to create these these monsters. And then if you create the monsters, you say there's monsters everywhere. And I need blank, blank, blank. I need 10 diversity, equity, and inclusion czars. And I need the staff. And I need uh, this many books published by Simon & Schuster on black things. And I need this many characters in TV commercials. And that's how it works. And it will continue to work until somebody says, known hick pork is not this pig. i'm going to evaluate people on them on people on their individual right. characteristics and soul and not i'm not going to look at their their skin color you know that and what i just said is considered worse than racism because if, if people adopted that that ideology the whole thing would collapse it's yeah. built on it's built on straw it just needs a few people to say no not me. And you're already starting to see it when Dave Chappelle took on the, you know, the transgender group and they were going to cancel him and they were going to do this to him. And then he, Netflix just said, Nope, he's making us too much money. Right. And Joe Rogan, yeah, Joe Joe Rogan, they're thinking, Nope, he makes us too much money. And uh, the universities and Hollywood are sort of the places where you can't do that, but maybe Maybe what's going to happen this year or the next year is that Hollywood's going to learn that none of their movies that are woke make any money. They lose. Maybe the New York trade publishers are going to understand that all these books are pouring out about woke this and woke that, lose money. Maybe Wall Street's going to learn that ESG and all of these ideological reasons to buy stock other than profit and loss are going to lose money. And suddenly we're going to wake up and say, "Ah." say them which trials are over joe mccarthy is a drunk braggart. right happens we went through a collective hysteria now it's over yeah
0: well and we're still in it and one of those uh incidents of this idiocy happened the other day and i'm i'm pretty sure you haven't yet uh, addressed queen elizabeth's Death, And I'm not asking I'm going to save that for Sammy, Uh, the great Sammy Wink, if she wants to uh, when she records podcasts with you, wants to discuss that. But in response to the Queen's death, though, there have been a number of of um, high level, often college, but elite. Uh, accusations and and uh, denouncements of the queen, the colonizer, etc. <laughs> one of the cruel, crudest ones that came out immediately was this professor at Carnegie Mellon, modern language professor, Uju Anya, who had said she hoped when she heard the queen had died, she hoped her death had been uh, one of excruciating pain and Victor I I wasn't really doing any research into her but I plugged her name in Google and something came up about her as a racist and it was uh uh it was a petition on change.com one of these you know petition websites where she now she's from Nigeria and I I I'm, I'm going to say my observation is uh, people from Nigeria who are recent, you know, come to, to the United States uh, or Western Africa or even the Caribbean, they don't want to be known as, uh, you know, uh, African Americans. They they don't want to be associated with uh, thought of the same as uh, blacks in America who are who are the, the you know the great great grandchildren of slaves. They see themselves as distinct. They actually have a have a, de- a derogatory term they use. For uh, the you know the progeny of uh, of uh, slaves, it's called a, a
1: kata. Yeah, I, I think i mean, it wrong. Doesn't but, it mean I think it means stray cat that left home and never wandered away and never came back.
0: Yeah. But it also is, it's, it's, you know, it's it's, it's, it's it's a, it's a, it's a put down. So she has used this term, uh, uh, tweeted it. You said some, of course, some kids have gone after her now on some petition. So it's, I don't know, maybe it's a little, little league uh, uh, Jacobins being eaten by their own kind, but the the hostility of her, her uh, attack and that of others, on the death of the queen by these, I mean they really are elites. I mean, they they're they they're they're acting like they are themselves oppressed, but they are the one percent of the one percent of America. I just find it uh really and Jeff, you'd say people you know saying no no more of this. It was interesting. Jeff Bezos attacked her immediately. I don't know, you know, read well, too much into as that. As a general rule,
1: when people come here, if they come here to work and they're impoverished from Oaxaca, for example, in my community then they're very happy to be here and they see that things work. At least they used to work compared to what's going on in Southern Mexico. But if they're elites, like Ilian and Amar are this professor from Nigeria and they come, then they scan the horizon and they see that the institutions in which they want to participate because they're elites, whether that's academia or media or government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is left-wing. And then they immediately set foot in the United States and they have a whole array of charges. And then that begs the question, well, if it's so bad, why did you come here? I mean, and then she blames uh, in her rant, she blamed the queen for, you know, all the deaths from Nigeria. But I mean, if you just take one event, you remember they had the, uh, Feed the World and all of that stuff. Sure. All, in yeah. 19, I think that was 67 to 70 or something about Biafra. And Biafra, the, yeah. The, yeah, the, uh, that was George Harrison
0: uh, led an effort on that. Yeah,
1: he did. It was a great concert. And two million people died. And it was kind of a proxy war. I get that. But it was a weird proxy war as I remember because the Soviet Union was kind of on the side of Britain for Biafra and Nigeria was kind We were neutral because we were we had no dog in the fight. But there were other... France, I think, was for Nigeria. But the point I'm making is that was a black-on-black civil war. The British had no, nothing to do with it. And so she's saying that she, the queen caused her all this trouble. But when you look at all of the ex-colonial world, let's say, in Africa uh, and other places... Whether it was, it wasn't because they were necessarily humanitarian, although many of the imperialists were, but they wanted order and they wanted people to get along and to go, rise above strife so they could be useful for the empire. But the point I'm making is that when that imperial project collapsed after 200 years, what followed wasn't better. It was bloodbath and, re- and retribution and vendetta. Right. And for her to come to the United States and say, "Well, I left all these this murder behind because of the Queen." The Queen was apolitical. She all all she did was travel the world and try to be a good emissary of British manners and traditions and stability. And the thing that is going to be interesting is uh we you know lady Di was glamorous and then we had fergie and then we had her son andrew and we have all of these her sister margaret so i won't even get into Meghan markle and crazy prince harry but the point i'm making is they have a large extended family and all of them were on even prince charles with his wacky idea about uh you know, green this and green that. Yeah, he's a climate. Islam and and all this stuff. So my point is that, you know, he's not defender of the faith. He's defender of the face, as if Britain has no particular religious tradition that it was founded upon. But my point is that none of them, all of them are found wanting. None of them could last five years under the public eye. And yet this woman for 70 years lived in a bubble and every aspect of her life was the stuff of the paparazzi, and they couldn't, and she, she acted with sobriety and grace and humor, and nobody could do that. And you're going to find out nobody could do that. And her job was simply to, uh, you know, to represent British values of the values that she grew up with in the mid 20th century. And she did a good job, early 20th century was, and mid-20th century. She did a good job. And they'll never find anybody that could withstand that pressure. And my God, how you would get up every day in, the, in, in your life and have to put on these particular clothes and go out and meet these particular dignitaries and shake a 100 hands and smile with all these crazy people you have to meet with one directive. I represent the British government. British traditions and the British people. And today I'm not going to embarrass them. I'm going to enhance their image. That was something that we don't see in this narcissistic, selfish culture.
0: Well, Victor, um, you're, you're up in Michigan in cold, cold Michigan. And I'm, I'm so happy for you that you haven't been home. Hot, hot, boiling, hot, thermostat locked, California. <laughs> Get your quick thoughts on the uh, Gavin Newsom's electricity ramblings right after these important messages. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, Never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. When you use the promo code VICTOR50, at factormeals.com victor50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month head to factormeals.com slash Victor50. That's victor O R five zero, And use the code Victor50. That's code Victor50 at factormeals.com slash Victor50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia Collusion. Hunter Biden We're back with the Victor Davis Hansen Show. A couple of quick plugs, victorhansen.com. That's Victor's official website. And if you're not subscribing, something's wrong. You know that you get a lot, a lot of original content there. I don't know that we're going to have time on this episode to talk about I two pieces. Maybe we'll talk about, uh, talk about one on another podcast. But for example, um, raisins. Uh, you, did the, you have this two-part series on, on on growing raisins. It's just terrific, but it's part of the exclusive uh, content of the website. It's 5 bucks a month, 50, $50 for the year. So I really want to encourage our listeners to stick their toe in the water and subscribe. Uh, for me, Jack Fowler, I write Civil Thoughts, a free weekly email newsletter for the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic. Again, it's free, a dozen, 12, 13, 14. Uh, recommended readings. We're not taking your name. We're not selling your name. It's no no risk. Uh, sign up, SybilThoughts.com. And one plug, Victor, you know, I do this. I, I've been blessed to be your uh, compadre here, uh, host, Sammy Wink, the great Sammy Wink, the same, but one of the great hosts of Victor Davis Hansen podcast in the past has been Troy Senek. a yes. great friend. And Troy's got a book coming out. Uh, this uh, this week, and it's called "A Man of Iron: The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland." It's a great book. Uh, I want to recommend to our listeners to, uh, to to buy it. So go find it on on Amazon. So Victor, um, yeah, thermostats. I, I I'm I'm so glad I'm. I'm you know, retrograde when it comes to these things. I don't have an Alexa. I don't think my refrigerator can listen to my conversations in my house, at least, you know, the refrigerator is too old, uh, but the, that, that thermostats could be locked by some third party that the governor of the state who has, who has suppressed energy uh, creation in the state and, and has lauded it is, is now demanding of its residents, that they, uh, you know, roast and don't use the uh, don't use uh, air conditioning at certain uh, times. Uh, mandates that everyone and his uncle has to have an electric car, but of course, how the hell you're gonna? You're going to uh, charge an electric car with electricity made from from fossil fuel. Anyway, it's just the typical madness in, in California. But it, it, what thoughts do you have, if any, if you want to share about this kind yeah. of uh, energy crisis? I think,
1: I think even the Teslas, when you turn them ready, they have a little warning on their uh, their dash saying, don't charge me. <laughs> that was his really big brother. Seriously? Uh, yeah. Really? Yeah, oh, my yeah. God. Oh, but- wow. uh, This is long and coming. And so you got to remember about California, there's this coastal strip from La Jolla to Berkeley, it's about 30 miles wide. And it kind of expands around Los Angeles. And that's where 30 of the 40 million people live. And at the dawn of globalization, seven, $8 trillion of market capitalization and this is where Caltech and Stanford and USC and UCLA and UC Berkeley and except that's where the universities are and they decided that they had reached utopia and so they were going starting about 30 years ago they were not going to build any more dams so in 1983 is the last dam (laughs) who who needs the California water project How, how unnatural is that and they said we don't want Rancho Seco nuclear plant in Sacramento. We don't want the one down on the Southern California coast. So they got rid of those two. Take eight, 9% of the nuclear production of the state. Take another eight. That was 20. And don't build any more hydroelectric. And don't stop whatever leases you have and, and the minimum fracking down by Bakersfield. And then don't tap this enormous Monterey shale oil and natural gas and then say you're green it's hot everybody has solar panels on your house and it's more power to them and they they generate a lot of electricity but only during the day and only mostly during the spring and summer then they say well we're going to outlaw cars but what are they doing i mean the, the everybody has this wrong about california they think that they're just stupid And therefore, they're in a quandary. That's true. But they're also malicious and they're conniving. And what I mean by that is to feed this 41 million person state, you've got to import electricity from other places, other states and fuels, natural gas and oil. And that means places like Alaska and Utah and Arizona. And they don't follow your rules. So it's sort of like, well, we believe that carbon emissions are killing people so you guys have to burn carbon and so you generate electricity and then you give us your refinery you know fumes and all that you you keep that but then you you send gas and you send electricity to us and that's what we do we don't we don't produce anything same thing with timber same thing with mining so we have we have one of the richest natural resources uh, in every aspect of that that idea, and we don't exploit them anymore. And then we, le- and then every once in a while, like every once in a while, like every summer, these tinderbox forests that haven't been maintained, they haven't been thin, they haven't been cleaned of cleaned of dead trees and brush, they go up like tinderboxes. And then they sort of say, "Well, that's climate change," or those poor white trash shouldn't be living in the foothills. And this is nature's way of readjusting. And then they, th- these fires put more carbon in into the, the California atmosphere than months of driving. And so that's how they operate. And it's all based on the idea that Gavin Newsom and the people around him and that class lives where they do. It's the weirdest thing in the world, this state, because when it's 110 in Fresno, it's 85 maybe in Palo Alto, or maybe it's 65 or 75 in San Francisco. And so when it's, you know, let's get it up to 28 kilowatts, let it get, let's get it up to 30 kilowatts, let's make it impossible to turn on your air conditioner. That, don't, that doesn't affect people on the coast. That affects poor people who can't afford $1,000 a square foot. On the coast. So, one way, and I think the only way and the best way of looking at this dysfunctional state is it's a bunch of very wealthy, privileged people who got richer than Croesus on globalization because they had particular wares, whether it was insurance or law or university or academia or tech. And they've got so much money and they live in this paradisi- paradisical place with this year round 70 degrees that they make like life hell for the other 10 million that live in very tough places that can get very hot or very cold in the mountains or in the valleys. They don't care. And then they dress it all up as being woke. But if they were to if you were to look at it through their woke lenses, you would say this is a bunch of very wealthy uh, people in the legislature and in the universities and in the media and in politics that are crafting policies that make Mexican-American people of the lower middle class in places from, I don't know, Turlock down to Early Mart, to Strathmore, to Stratford, to Bakersfield, that makes them almost impossible to live because they can't afford to turn on the air conditioner when it's 110 Or they can't afford to fill up their $6 a gallon pickup. It's a very selfish culture, this bike bi-co- this bicostal, both on the east and west coast. It, it's yeah. really strange. It's it's one of the weirdest things that I've ever encountered. They don't, they're atheist or agnostic, so they have this, they're like the Jacobins with their Lord Radio, this idea of humanism, secular humanism or radio, or reason mm-hmm. or logic. And then it's a cult, and then they're devoted, and they have and no apostate is allowed anything any power or any influence or any dissenting view.
0: It's kind of a political sadomasochism. There is a thrill at inflicting pain.
1: Yeah, Uh, they uh, love They love the idea of inflicting pain. That's why they love COVID. They love the idea that everybody was locked down and they got their news only through their screens and the hell out class brought them all of their food and appliances and dropped them at their door and they were on Zoom and made a ton of money. And the government can control where you're going, what you were doing, except if you're Nancy Pelosi at her hairdresser, Gavin Newsom, you know, at a baseball game or at the French Laundry or London Breed, et cetera, et cetera. So they've destroyed the state as a functional state. What I mean that is... Our listeners know you cannot drive a car into San Francisco and park it on the side of the street without expecting it to be broken in and nobody will be held accountable. Our people know, our people, our Americans know if you walk into San Francisco, you've got to be watch your feet, what you step in, you're going to see thousands of homeless defecating, urinating, fornicating, injecting. If you fly into SFO and you look at the bay, from the most green city in the United States, you're going to see a lot of brown effluent. A lot of brown effluent. That's partly a mixture of these archaic Bay Area treatment plants that have such high costs to update, uh, and they don't get nitrogen out of their effluent. And the storm drains, where they wash all of these little cities, uh, big cities, and little and mid, they have to wash all the crap off into the storm gutters, and so. It's it's very strange. It's 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 like pre-modern, except in certain little enclaves with security guards. And that's who runs the place. And uh, I don't know how they get away with it as long as they've done, because they tend to be quasi racist. They can't tend to be. And I don't mean that just loosely, because it's largely uh, a white and wealthy Asian class that mm-hmm. uh, don't really care the effects on mostly people because the white middle class is leaving the state and it's being replaced by a Mexican American middle class. It is baffled that their right. former democratic allies and patrons care so little about their religion, their customs, their traditions, and their livelihood.
0: Yeah. Again, not only care, don't care, but hey, uh, Victor, we I do want to get your, uh, hear your thoughts about that terrific two-part series you wrote for VictorHanson.com on, on raisins, um, but uh, just want to make note, um, a, a, P- Portland is, let's say Portland's a, a, a first cousin or maybe even a younger brother of San Francisco when you think about the kind of lunacy that's going on in major cities on the West Coast. Here's a headline today I'm reading from, you know, of National Review, sorry, Victor, three, three Portland hotels headed for foreclosure. amid rampant rioting and homelessness. This is by Diana Klobovich from uh, yesterday. Three hotels in Portland set for foreclosing after missing mortgage payments, according to documents by the Willamette Week, uh, et cetera, et cetera. They owe 270 million. I mean, uh, I'm not going to read anymore other than to say, uh, we we can all deduce why. Nobody's going there anymore. Uh, There's madness in the streets. And um, what's a sign that no one's going there anymore? The hotels are empty, and now going under. Uh, This is—is Portland going to be—is the Detroit the the next Detroit in America? Maybe San Francisco is going
1: to be the next Detroit.
0: Anyway, uh, if you have any thoughts about that,
1: um... it's a beautiful city. I used to go there and speak a lot. They have great bookstores. They have a couple of colleges and universities, and it's like San Francisco. It was a place that in the 1970s and 1980s, everybody wanted to go to the 1990s and Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, you know, these were all the hip places. They were supposed to be tolerant and they were naturally beautiful. And they had people who were running them that were old time Democrats that grew up in the twenties and thirties and forties, and they're gone now. And we've got the woke people that are incompetent, ideologically driven, biased, and they're running these cities, and they've taken their inheritance from prior ancestors, trashed the the ancestors as illiberal, racist, sexist, homophobes, torn down their statues, renamed buildings. And what have they given us? They've given us pre-modern Dickensian London. That's what they've given us. And if you go there, and I've been to all those cities, the downtown is uninhabitable, and you can't walk at night in the downtown and the wealthy people live in secluded enclaves and they don't go downtown if they can help it. And they have no idea what after spending billions of dollars, they have no idea what to do with the homeless. And they have no idea what to do with these career criminals that are just looting and killing and hijacking. And they can't talk about it for the homeless. They will not talk about it. And everybody knows you have to have mental hospitals and you have to have areas where they can be treated. I I don't want to use the word camps, but they have to have compounds where people can be, you know, the individual shelters or group shelters where they can be watched and treated medically and they should not be allowed to go out on the street and defecate and harass and urinate and have sex and shoot up drugs and ruin the entire, I mean, it's medieval. So when you start asking ourselves, well, why do we have monkeypox? And why are we getting polio, the return of polio? And why is all this happening? Maybe it's because there was some law of nature that said, you know, 2,500 years ago, the Greeks and the Romans discovered that you've got to take your effluent and make it downstream, and you can't allow people on the streets to do the things they're doing now. So it's really a a return to feudal, feudal times or medieval times. Yeah. And I don't know at what point there is a point. There always is that when a thing can't go on, it won't, it won't go on. Herb Stein, I think said that. Right. But, but I don't know how close we are because everybody's been navigating around it. So they have the money. So if you look at house prices in mm-hmm. Tiburon or Pacific Heights, I think Mark Zuckerberg just sold his latest home for 26 million. There's this there's such an imbalance and inequality of wealth because of globalization. There's so many people that figure that I will live in these beautiful cities. I've got a lot of money. I have a walls around my house. My kids will go to a neighborhood prep school. And I can I, I want to live here, but I will under no circumstances go out to the downtown or to the poor areas by myself because I will be attacked. Right. And I don't know when, what happens when you can't jog at four thirty in the morning, and if you get right raped and killed, then the Twitter mob or the Facebook monsters say that it was your fault for going, you know, for being right. alone in the middle and. We make excuses, but, you know, nobody wants to talk about there's certain things we can't talk about, Jack. And let's be honest. We have a problem after George Floyd with young African-American men between the ages of about 17 and 50 that comprise about six to seven percent of the population. And they're committing about 55 percent of all violent crime. And it's largely occurring in the cities. And people know that and they make the necessary adjustments and they don't talk about it. Right. And anytime this, you see a video, and now they're almost hourly, of, of oh my group, gosh, yeah. a group of African American people jump out, and they had one, I think a woman in Chicago. Chicago, girl, right. Yep. Just kicked her and beat her. The jogger, they had two people in Memphis that were talking about hunting down whites. They kidnapped a mother with two children. It just in, They beat up, they kick a, an Asian woman almost to death, hit people in the knockout game. Everybody knows it. Nobody will talk about it. Anybody who talks about it, it's a racist. And so they go along their way and just say, and it's never going to change right. until people talk about it. And And I don't know what to do about it, but you can't. You know right. I, I remember gotta... that t- t- Todd nahisi quotes the African American I guess he's a comic book writer now but when he in his heyday as a critic he would talk about the talk that I have a talk uh, with every young African- American that the police will stereotype well that may be true and we saw that racism can occur as it we did with George Floyd I suppose but my point is that if your son is part of a collective, that's committing uh, crime at about nine times their demographic, then people are going to be on the watch for him. And I'm not saying that that's what Jesse Jackson most infamously said. Right. So I don't know how, how you deal with it because it, it butts up against all of these liberal pieties and you, you can't get anywhere. So then what do you do? We just kind of lie. And people make the necessary adjustments. So African-Americans, middle-class African-Americans know this, and they want police, and they don't have police. So they're leaving Chicago. They're just leaving. And you're starting to see the, the strangest thing in the world, that there is a second African-American diaspora, but it's in the reverse direction of the 1920s and 30s and 40s. It's back to small towns and largely red states where there's communities and the laws enforced and right. they don't they don't feel anymore that conservative red states are racist at all. Maybe their right. elites do, but they don't. They feel safer in in Tennessee or small town Alabama so. than they do in liberal uh, Chicago yeah, do, or Baltimore and yeah. Detroit. Just You're in the fact.
0: Bronx, and I gotta go get a
1: gotta get a quart of milk, and
0: I'm I may be taking my life into my hands. I mean,
1: well, I mean, who, uh, who, who you gotta get out of Dodge? You just have to. Yeah, yeah. and it's happening. It's happening everywhere, right. and the whole society. I don't know. I have an article I was writing today for for American greatness. What caused all this? There were these precursors to it, but then I think the lockdown. It's COVID, the lockdown, the quarantine, the rise of the Twitter instantaneous mob and the Facebook, social media, all of it was like a perfect storm. And this country is almost unrecognizable now in terms of crime, in terms of energy, in terms of cost, in terms of the political class. And, you know, I get so tired. Of a John Kerry stepping off of a jet plane lecturing, or Bill Gates in his compound in Seattle lecturing, or you know, Jeff Bezos lecturing, or Mark Zuckerberg lecturing, or Michael Bloomberg lecturing, because they're not wealthy, they're hyper wealthy. Right. And they're completely shielded from many of the ideologies like George Soros that they advance that destroy the middle class and make life hell. And they don't care. In fact, it's, it's beyond that they don't care. They make fun of the middle class. And they, okay. they project their own racism or elitism on the middle class. Because after all, if they're so ecumenical and tolerant, why would they build these compounds? Look at the Obamas. Why do they need uh, the Calorama uh, ma- mansion and then a secluded uh, estate and Martha's Vineyard, plus their Chicago little digs? Big digs. And then I mm-hmm. have this Hawaii thing. And they all have one thing in common. They want to keep away from people. Right. They don't want people getting near them. They want to have a safe world. And then they emerge from those enclaves and start lecturing America how it's racist and what it has to do. What it has to do. What it has to do to make the Obamas not hate them or not feel right. racist. Oh, please. And so we're supposed to do this. A guy who's under, you know, in a shop all day, black, Mexican-American, I don't know what, doesn't matter. And all day he's going to work and he's going to make $100. And then he gets out of that greasy and he goes home and the Obamas are saying, well, this is what you're going to think. And you've got to win my approval. And that's just, everybody's sick of it.
0: Well, Victor, um, Let's, let's totally change the tenor of this conversation and talk about raisins, and we'll do that right after these important messages. Okay, it's
1: time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks.
0: We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show recording on Saturday, September 10th. Victor, you write a lot of exclusive material for VictorHanson.com. And one of the latest pieces you've written is a two-part a series on what it's like to grow uh, raisins. Uh, the, I mean, I just, I'm, I can't imagine a, a worse job I probably can but <laughs> let's just say it's a pretty damn tough job to be in 1967 19 you know, mid 6 having to harvest raisins just the, the 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 physical wear and tear that you and others your family and many others in the area went through to grow these things for us to eat sweet little treats for us us to eat uh, Victor it's a great series I recommend our, our listeners read it of course you have to subscribe to do that but just tell us uh you know quickly because we, we don't have much time left here um how how dirty the business was of of growing grapes
1: well it's changed radically so now they're trellised you know, and they're mechanically cut and they dry on the vine. But half the crop is done the old way that I described. And this is only part two of five. But essentially, if you wait till about August 25th, it's about 105. And you've got drying weather, it takes about two weeks. You go through with a tractor, you slant the row between the two vines, you go pick the Pick the, you crawl down, basically, with a pan, and you go under that vine, and it's filthy, dirty, it's dusty, there's black widows, there's yellow jackets, some of the bunches are mildew, you cut the grapes, they drop in the pan, then you pull yourself out of the vine, turn around, and you dump a pan on a piece of paper, you spread it, it's about 23 pounds, and you go down, and you, when I did it, I got six cents a tray. And then you go down the next and the next and next. And you have to pick all the grapes. You can't melt them and pull them because they shatter. And you have to put not too many grapes so they'll never dry and not too fuel or they turn into caramel. And you have to pick between 19 and 23 bricks if you don't if they're too sour they turn into what we call weedies and they blow away cuz there's no sugar in them and if if you wait too long to get the perfect sugar then a rain like there's a tropical storm now in Mexico and I, I lost two entire crops by having the the grapes on the vine, on the ground right about now if you rains, gambled they, right yeah i gambled and then i gambled i should say i lost three crops i lost two to to we we my family we lost two to rain and another one uh, we picked early because we didn't want it and they didn't have the sugar and half the crop evaporated and it didn't make a good raisin, a red rather than a purple raisin. And then I did have one big crop, as my neighbor once said to me, an older fellow who's very smart, but he said, it, you know, I went out, we got it out, and we rolled Then you roll them into balls and stick them onto the vine into biscuits. And if you do that, you can they'll survive a rain because uh, they later came out with resins and plastics and stuff in the trays to make them waterproof. but we saved the entire crop and then the price, you know went up forty percent because so many people lost there. So there's this element. who got the raisins in that year? And it was like, who got the raisins in during the seventy six disaster, the seventy seven. The 80, the 82 and anybody who did made a lot of money or not. And now, you know, it's the cram raisin market and Greek raisins and the raisin businesses. Uh, it's not you can't survive. So most people have pulled out their vineyards and they are uh, they're planting almonds, which are also bad now. And if they're staying in the business, they have to spend about ten dollars to $15,000 to redo, plant a different type of variety than the Thompson seedless, uh, plant them much more densely, the rows are closer, they trellis so the whole thing looks like a, a you know, carpet above your head, it's completely shady for weed control, and then a machine or you have people go through and cut the canes and then they dry on the vine for months. Maybe in October, then you shake them into a bin and go to a dehydrator and finish the job. But it's there's still people who do the natural way. About you know half. At one time there were three or four hundred thousand acres. It was the crop from uh, Bakersfield to really Modesto and Sun. I was you know my grandfather was one of the original members of Sunmade Raisin Cooperative, right. and uh, I. I picked a lot of grapes. Uh, my grandfather and parents, you know, they said I was born in '53. I remember picking in '59 and '60 60 and '61, and then most of my childhood until I was 18. And the idea was, if we're going to have this farm, and we're going to have to hire workers, and they, it was it was funny. The original people came during the Dust Bowl, so the workers that I remember when I was in were from Oklahoma very poor. And then they started to become upwardly mobile. And then there were people from the Philippines and then they started, and then there were people from Mexico and each, in fact, I can remember Japanese Americans doing it when I, but anyway, we were supposed to go out there and pick the perfect row and show the workers that the people who owned the property, their children would do a a good job and not, Leave berries on the vine. They wouldn't scatter the berries on the ground. They wouldn't throw trash in the row. They wouldn't defecate and they wouldn't go. They would go back to the end of the road to a portable bathroom. They wouldn't throw coke cans everywhere. They would lay a perfect 23. Tr- and that's what we had to do. And, right. And it was pretty tough, you know, when you're a young kid out there with a lot of. Uh, and then when I got older and I was on the other end of it, I was the person inspecting it. So I was, t- I would. Oh, take a year, 1984, I would get up at five in the morning, I'd get the crew started, and then I would drive 30 miles up to Fresno and teach a class. I'd come back, I'd monitor, talk to the crew boss, walk the roads. My other two brothers were doing something even more risky, table grapes in our other farm. And then I would go back, take a shower, go back, and then I would come back. And I would do that three times a day for that three or four week period from the time we picked To they dried to the timing they cured in the biscuit roll to the time you put the biscuit roll into a bin and you got the entire, then you had to shake them, Jack. So you had this primitive shaker and you had to throw every one of those bins in a bin dumper. And it was just like a dust storm. Everything came out. I mean, twigs came out, bird crap came out, lizard, live lizards came out, black widows came out, leaves, dirt puncture vine and then you had to make sure that is that it shook all every all the debris that fell through the little slots and the and the raisins bounced down then you picked out rotten raisins scorched raisins green raisins and then you put it into what we used to do sweat boxes they weighed about 70 pound huge big thick oak boxes pine i should say Then you stack them up and you tarp them and you let them there for a couple of months to cure, so they even out. And that was that was a lot. You had a a derrick. We had a big derrick before we got went to bins. But again, that was something that was supposed to build character.
0: Yeah. Well, tell me, just one. We got one minute left, so you got you only got one minute. You can answer this question. Why is why are table grapes even more risky than raisins? The raisins sound like a fifty-part process because uh, you don't
1: put it, the farmer who and I've done table grapes. So you get a raisin grape is the size of your thumbnail or something, little tiny okay. go. But if yeah. you want to get that grape big and and sweet, right? There's new varieties now, but you got to girdle the vine that means make a little cut around the either the stump or each cane after you prune you have to spray it with gibberellic acid which enlarges the berry then for the whole summer that you're growing this you've got to water not every two weeks or two and a half weeks you got to water every week you've got to thin leaves so the sun can see hit the grapes and, and make them color there's birds. You've got to get the birds away from, they'll peck, especially if they're red grapes or black grapes. Okay. And there's so many hand jobs and it's so, and the point is you have to make a box of grapes that looks exactly like someone in New York city will want a perfect <laughs> right. bunch. Right. And it has to taste sweet Right. And, and you can't have any rot and you have to bring it all out and you have to clip it. And so it's kind of like surgery. And the point is that Wow. Whereas you have maybe today, three or four thousand dollars an acre before you see in a raisin or five thousand, six thousand. You may have twenty thousand in a, a table great. grade. Wow. wow. And wow. then you have to make sure that it doesn't rain because they because you're going to pick right now into September, October, even some November. They'll put plastic over the the rows. But if you get a rain and those big fat sweet berries, uh, if you get a quarter inch, they'll split. And once they split, the juice comes down, the gnats get in it, and you've lost your oh,
0: wow.
1: I, I just a final thing in nineteen the year my mom died, nineteen eighty-nine we had uh, red ruby seedless. I wrote about this in Fields Without Dreams and it rained. And we tried to put Botran and Captan, all these were fungicides in those days, and we tried to put plastic over the rows because we knew it was going to rain. But it it rained and it rained and it rained, and they were beautiful grapes. And the next by morning, we just walked out there, and huh. I, my brother said to me, "Smell them! It's like mm. a it's like a distillery." And you looked up, and there were millions of these little gnats, and these big beautiful. Three pound bunches were hanging, and they were just dripping juice down on the ground. And they were, we had to take them to the uh, the crusher to make—I uh, don't know what—they made grape juice or cheap wine out of them. Yeah, wow. Well, Victor,
0: um, thanks. It's—I uh, mean—fascinating, and I know many of our uh, listeners are, are really enjoy uh, hearing about your your life growing up and life on the farm and. The rigor of it. So uh, uh, before we we close, I do want to uh, thank our listeners for listening. And no matter what platform they do that on, uh, we appreciate it. Um, Those that listen on iTunes and Apple Podcasts have the opportunity to rate the show five stars, one to five stars, and the the, uh, 99% rate of five stars. And we thank you for doing that. And some leave comments also. And here's a comment now, one of the um podcasts in the recent week or two that you and I had pre recorded, uh, to because you were going to be away at Hillsdale. Uh, we asked, I asked of you, excuse me, one of the listeners asked that I ask a question of you about your musical yeah. uh, tastes, <laughs> and, and that got so it was so popular. I got so much commentary about that. So, this one is titled VDH's Music. I've listened to the Victor Davis Hanson podcast for years since Rush passed away. It's been a major source of news commentary for me. After listening to the user question podcast, I realized his taste in music is exactly what I would have thought it would be country to Broadway musicals, tributes to his beloved family. It was a great episode and prompted me uh, to review it for the first time. I guess it means went back and listened again. Thanks. I thank you uh, for what you do. Even through your COVID struggles, both Jack and Sammy have been amazing. Just don't stop the rants, uh, and we don't intend to. And this is signed by uh, Tabella. So thanks, Tabella, for that. Yeah, was uh, was really really uh, interesting to listen to Victor's uh, far ranging tastes in music. So, um, Victor, thanks so much. Um, for uh, sharing your wisdom today again to our listeners thanks for listening and please be assured we will be back soon with yet another episode
1: of the victor davis hansen show thanks everybody for listening